0: We well, you ever wondered why um, it seems like some people uh, have a greater intensity of devotion and love and commitment to Jesus? It, it seems like, like love for him just uh, you know, pours out of their soul like water coming out of a faucet. You know, There are some people that um, you know, like to talk about him, might be interested in Jesus. But then there's other people that so clearly love him. You might think about your own walk with the Lord. There are times when your love for him is warm, and there's times when it's cold. It seems to ebb and it seems to flow, and you wonder, why might that be? Certainly not an easy answer to that question, and there's probably a few different ways that we could answer that question, but I think this passage gives us probably the best place to start when it comes to this. In this story here, we just, uh, we just heard read from Luke 7. It's a story that involves, it's a pretty simple story. It involves just three main characters, right? Jesus, a Pharisee, his name is Simon, and a woman who's never named. And yet she's called a sinner three times. In the whole story, it's a contrast between Simon the Pharisee and this woman with Jesus at the center. It's a contrast in their approach to him It's a contrast in their awareness about themselves, and it's also a contrast in how they leave this table and the blessing that they leave this table with. And so what I hope that you take away from this sermon is that um, our love for Jesus will rise to the level of our awareness of his forgiveness, that our love for Jesus will rise to the level of our awareness of his forgiveness. And, And we'll see three contrasts at this table with Jesus. There's a contrast in approach, there's a contrast in awareness, there's also a contrast in blessing. First, there's a contrast in approach. We know from the um, the end of the story that there there are three main characters, there's actually others around the table listening in and watching these events. So this is a public scene. It's actually a dinner party. You wonder what it might have been like to be at a dinner party back then in the first century. Uh, let's try to just take a moment here to, to picture ourselves there because the details of the story, the details of the customs and the events that take place at this dinner party are actually central to understanding the story. Look at verse 36. I encourage you to have your Bible open there to, to Luke chapter 7. We'll look at verses 36 to 50. Verse 36, it be, the story begins with uh, one of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. First thing we see here is that a Pharisee has invited him over. Who are these Pharisees? The Pharisees were the, the, um, the experts, the religious experts in the law of Moses, in the Jewish laws. And so they were the people that the common people would go to to figure out how to apply the law of Moses. But here's what the Pharisees did. They not only had the law of Moses, but they took these applications, And they formed their own tradition. So if you were to come to a Pharisee looking for help in how to apply the Bible, you'd not only get the Bible, but you'd also get their specific applications. And this became a problem. Because they started adding things to the Bible, which became a burden for the people. And so the Pharisees were the really serious religious people that the other serious religious people would go to for answers. But the problem with the Pharisees is that they all too often gave some pretty bad answers. And so a Pharisee has invited him over. We see here that this Pharisee, whose name is Simon, he would have served as the host for this dinner party. And maybe some of you come from different parts of the world or parts of the country or or cultures where hosting is a really big deal. It's a big responsibility. You know, to, to host people, you know, you would have to honor them, to serve them. And that's what it would have been like back then. And this is how it would have worked. And these details are important, play a big part of the story. If someone were to come into your house back then, If you didn't have a servant to wash their feet, you would provide water and a towel so they could wash their feet and have their feet dried. You might think, well, why is that? Well, remember, they wore sandals. They didn't have pavement. There were no Nike. There was no Reebok. They walked on the street. And not only did they walk on the street, but they shared the street with animals. So if you ever, you know, walk through a zoo or, or walk down the street after a parade, you can imagine how dirty it might be. And so to have someone in your house with dirty feet would have been to dishonor them. It would be like if someone came into your house in the winter with wet boots and, and a wet coat and you did nothing to, you know, give them dry clothes or to take their wet, their wet clothes. Also, if someone were to come into your house, you'd give them a kiss on the cheek, just a, a sign of friendly affection, like a shaking a hand or giving a hug. You'd also give them a cushion. And so back then, they didn't have tables like we do that were raised. You would slide under with a chair. That, that's not how you would eat. The tables were low to the ground. You'd actually lay on your side, typically on your left side, and you put your elbow on the ground, and you eat with your right hand. So you can kind of picture it. There's a table in the middle, and there's all these people laying on their left side with their feet swung out. And so you provide people with a cushion so they could lean on, uh, on, on the floor and be comfortable. That's the scene. So it's a public scene, and into this public scene walks this unexpected and uninvited guest. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Behold, and we don't use that word anymore, but it's Luke's way of saying, look, check this out. Don't miss this. This is the important part. He wants our attention on her. Notice that she's called two things, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Uh, And some people uh, have given, you know, maybe some pretty good reasons to think that. um, I just want to be careful with my language because of the different uh, ages in the room, but uh, um, a woman of the street. Um, And there might be some good reasons to think about that was the case, but Luke actually doesn't give any indication. So if you read commentary, some people suggest that, they argue that, that may be true. We really don't know. What Luke wants us to know is that people knew that she had a past, people knew that she. Uh, was a sinner in fact no one in the story denies it she knows that she's a sinner simon the pharisee knows and even jesus knows and so she's a sinner she has a history she she's she's got this well-known past you can imagine um, having thanksgiving dinner with your family and your friends and and who walks into the door but you know someone who had just made headline news for doing something you just imagine your surprise. That, that's the scene. It, it's, it's a shock that this person would, would show up at this dinner party, especially someone like her. How would Jesus treat such a person? And that's the story. So she's a well known sinner. But here's the amazing thing about the story she doesn't behave like the way we'd expect someone with her reputation to behave. In fact, Luke puts her forward as the model to be followed. She's the example of devotion and love to Jesus that Jesus commends, not the person we would expect. Something's clearly changed in her heart. Look, look at how she responds to Jesus. There, in verses thirty-eight, verse thirty-eight. First, it says that she's uh, she's she's weeping. This wouldn't have been, you know, like a single tear falling down her cheek. This would have been full-on crying. It's enough tears to wet his feet. And so she's weeping. She's crying. It would have been loud and noisy. It would have been quite a scene. You could not have ignored it. And so she starts cleaning his feet and drying his feet with her own hair. This is what Simon should have done. You do wonder if everyone else at the dinner party had clean feet except Jesus. And and she comes in, and she sees him, and and the first thing she can do, remember, his feet are swung out. She sees his feet. She falls at his feet, weeping, and she starts cleaning his feet, serving him, showing him honor, the very thing that Simon should have done. Not only that, but she also kisses his feet. Remember, Simon should have kissed his cheek, but he didn't. And not only that, but she, she brings this ointment, and she pours it on his feet. Uh, this would have been expensive. You know, you couldn't stop by, you know, CVS and get some, like, you know, Juergens or something like that. It, it would have been expensive. It would have been costly. It also shows that this was premeditated, right? She came prepared to honor Jesus this way. You know, maybe she's heard of his teachings, right? Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is a, he's growing in popularity. He's teaching. He's doing miracles. He just raised the dead just a few stories before, So you get the sense that this woman has understood who Jesus is. Perhaps she's heard him teach. She knows who he is, and she's on a mission to show him love and devotion and honor. And that's what she does. These are uh, demonstrations of humility, costliness, love, gratitude, honor. She's doing anything and everything she could possibly think of to communicate this to Jesus. She's on a mission to show him love and devotion. It's like, uh, you know, you just think, like, in that moment, it's like uh, she's, she's not concerned about anyone else at the table. It's like in that moment in her world, there's only two people that exist, she and Jesus. There's her response. It's the right response. But now it gets contrasted with Simon's response. Simon the Pharisee, look at how he responds there in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, who had invited him, by the way, saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In the same thought, he not only stands in judgment over this woman, but over Jesus. A scene that is so pure, commendable, a scene that's so tender and beautiful is offensive to him. What is this disease in his heart? There's something for us that, that Luke is, is forcing us to consider about ourselves. You know, are there people that you would be offended by if they showed this level of devotion and love to Jesus? You know, When mercy becomes offensive to us, we need to ask ourselves, what is this disease in my heart? You notice that... Uh, He dismisses Jesus there in verse 39. He dismisses Jesus as a prophet. And now the real reason why he invited Jesus over becomes clear, doesn't it? He wants to figure out if this guy is a prophet or not. This has been uh, the the big talk of the town. A prophet has arrived. In fact, if you just look back at, at verse 16, if you have your Bibles open, if not, I'll just read it to you. But verse 16 of chapter 7 coming off the heels of Jesus raising a dead man, this is what the, the crowd says. It says, fear sees them all. They glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countryside. This is the, the big talk of the town that Jesus is a prophet. And so some people are trying to sort out, who is this Jesus? How do we make sense of what he's saying and what he's doing? God has visited his people. Other people are not so sure. Other people in the town are not so sure about this. Look at verse 34 of chapter 7. This is the verse right before our our story. The son of man, that's a title for Jesus, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So some people think Jesus is a prophet. Other people think he's something like a frat boy. Who is this Jesus? And Simon wants to figure out for himself, so he invites him over for dinner. In the minute that he doesn't shove this woman away and scold her for making such a scene, he's made up his mind. This man's no prophet. It turns out he really is a friend of sinners. Of course, by the time you get to, to this part of Luke's gospel, if you were reading through Luke's gospel, you would have seen this coming. You know, you'd be able to intercept the pass. Because Luke's already told us Pharisees are missing something very important about Jesus. One more verse, just for context, verse 30 of chapter 7. This really helps us get a sense of what's happening at this table. This is what Luke says. He says, but the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him, by John the Baptist, They've rejected the purposes of God, and they've demonstrated that they've rejected the purposes of God because they didn't get the baptism of John the Baptist. How do we make sense of this? So what's Luke talking about? What are these purposes of God? Well, you remember, the the baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism of repentance. It's for people that were aware, hey, the Messiah is coming, the Savior is coming, and the only way that we could respond to him is to repent. Repent to turn from our sins and turn to God. And this is exactly what this woman here is doing. She's repenting. She understands the purposes of God, but Simon clearly does not. And so we have much to learn from Simon's heart. We learned that when we don't see how much we need to be forgiven, not only will we look down on other people we'll completely miss the purposes of God because he came for such as these. And she gets it. She knows that Jesus came for people like her. And so her approach to Jesus and Simon's approach to Jesus couldn't be more different. You know, know, Simon thinks he can stand in judgment over Jesus and this woman. And since Simon is too busy looking at everyone except himself, he not only misses the purity of this woman's devotion, he misses the identity of Jesus. And this woman, who has a clear understanding of who he is, she's able to be honest about herself and freed from comparing herself to others. You know, and, and Jesus never turns away a person like that. God only dwells with the humble and the contrite. It's the only people that have real fellowship with him. So there's the first contrast. It's a contrast in approach to Jesus. Here's also our second contrast, a contrast in awareness. Let's begin here by looking at Jesus' response to Simon. So we have these two responses. Jesus is now going to speak into this. Look at verse 40. And Jesus Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. You remember that Simon actually never verbalized what he was thinking, right? He just thought it. Jesus knows his thoughts. And they're ugly thoughts. And Jesus could have rebuked him, publicly shamed him. Remember, this is a public scene. This is a dramatic moment. But into the, the chaos of the moment and, and the noise, Jesus slows everything down. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. You see, Jesus sees Simon's heart. But now Jesus wants Simon to see Simon's heart. He wants Simon to see that he too is a sinner. You know, Jesus has a way of of holding up the mirror, doesn't he, and revealing our guilt. And this is why a lot of people um, avoid him. This is why a lot of people avoid Jesus and avoid the church or uh, avoid the Bible. You know, they don't like feeling guilty. But here's the thing. I, I don't think anyone has ever come to Jesus because they like feeling guilty. People come to Jesus because they know they need something, him to do something about their guilt. That's why they come to him. And so Jesus, he draws it out of us. He helps us see ourselves, but never with the intent to keep us there. You know, a surgeon doesn't use an MRI machine to expose cancer, simply to expose the cancer. He exposes the cancer in order to do something about it, in order to remove it. And likewise, Jesus exposes ourselves, he exposes our guilt in order to do something about it. And so now he will. He'll show, help Simon, and he'll help us today understand why so often we love him so little. And in typical Jesus fashion, he does this in a very, with a very simple parable, right? Do you notice that there's a parable right in the middle of this story? How like Jesus to slow everything down with a parable in the middle of such a chaotic, dramatic scene. But look at, look at this parable in verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? So there's the parable, and it's a simple one, right? You can understand it. A denari is a, um, a day's wage. So you have one person, they owe 500 days worth of debt, and the other person owes 50. Obviously, the person who's been relieved of the greater debt will have more gratitude towards the creditor who forgave the debt. It's a simple one. You can think of, um, you know, there's two people that owe, uh, you know, say to Bank of America, right? $100,000 and I don't know, 2,500 bucks. Who's going to love Bank of America more when they forgive the debt? Obviously, the one who owed $100,000. You'd probably get a Bank of America bumper sticker, a T-shirt. You'd be a customer for life. You'd probably say, I love Bank of America. They're so great. And Simon gets the concept, doesn't he? The greater the debt forgiven, well, the greater the love will be for the forgiver. So he gets it. Look, Look at verse 43. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. You know, debt in the Bible um, is a way of speaking about sin. What's the Lord's prayer? Forgive us our debts. It's a way of speaking about sin. We even use this in in our own day, right? If someone were to be released from prison, what would they say? I've paid my debt to society, right? So when we do something wrong to someone, it, it, we're in their debt. We have to make amends. We kind of owe them. So we get the concept. And of course, the Bible applies this to our relationship with God, that we have all sinned against God. We've all sinned. And the longer we live, the greater the debt accumulates, right? And You know, we, um, you, you think of like, uh, you know, forget like, a, like 500 days worth of debt Our debt is immeasurable. When we consider the one that we have sinned against, you think of God, this holy God, perfectly righteous in himself, who created us. I mean, just think about it for a moment. God created you. He made you, and he made you for himself, to, to love him, to enjoy him, to find your greatest satisfaction in delight and in knowing him and obeying him every day of your life. Who has done that for even a single day? I mean, our debt is immeasurable. And you might think to yourself, why doesn't God you know, just kind of lower the standards so that we can meet them? Well, I wonder what you might say to a criminal who on the day of his sentencing said to the judge, don't punish me for my crime. Just lower the standards of the law to make room for them. What kind of world would that be? What kind of judge would that be? We don't want a God with low standards. We don't need a God with low standards. And you just think of humanity, throughout the history of humanity, at somewhere in the world, every single day, humanity is crying out for justice. Why? We want high standards. And we want people to live up to them. God's standards are not the problem. His standards are good and wise and righteous and holy. The problem is not with God's standards. It's that we can't meet them because we're not. And this is what Simon and the other Pharisees, they can't get. They don't grasp. You know, admittedly, this guy Simon, he's kind of hard to pin down, isn't he? Right? Some of the other Pharisees are out trying to plot away to to kill Jesus. And Simon invited him over his house, shared a meal with him, answers his questions. I mean, Simon even kept his thoughts to himself when he had made up his mind. He doesn't embarrass Jesus at this table. You know, if if you were um, around back then and Simon was one of your neighbors, you'd probably think, you know, Simon's a pretty good guy. Simon's a decent man. On the outside, everything is just fine with Simon. Until you look a little closer until you see his thoughts, until you see what's under the surface. And then you begin to realize that actually Simon's just fine with, you know, just a little Jesus. Just a little Jesus. He might have him at his table. He's not going to have him in his heart. He might have an eye-to-eye conversation with him, but he certainly won't sit at his feet. He keeps a safe and comfortable distance between himself and Jesus and keeps his thoughts to himself. Why do you think that is? It's because he does not realize that the man at his table can clear his debt just like he cleared hers. And so he misses it. It, You know, the Pharisees, they didn't think that they were sinless. They didn't think that they were perfect. They just thought that their good would outweigh their bad. And God would think that's enough. Uh, They just thought, you know, at least we're not as bad as, you know, those people. And so Simon makes us uncomfortable, doesn't he? You know, he's self righteous, he's judgmental, he lacks mercy. I think he makes us uncomfortable for a a more personal reason. Maybe it's because we see a little bit too much of ourselves in him at that table. I'll just have a little Jesus. Certainly not the depth of devotion to make a fool of myself like that woman. I'll keep a safe distance between myself and Jesus. I'll talk about him, but I don't know if I'll love him. I mean, after all, I'm a pretty good person. Do I really need him that badly? I mean, at least I'm not as bad, you know, as those people. And so the question that Jesus proposes to Simon is actually the question that we need to hear. It's the question that Luke wants his readers to hear. It's the question of verse 44, the question of the passage. Do you see this woman? Of course he saw her. But do you see her? Do you see her? Because Jesus does. Do you see this woman? Look at verse 44. And now turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. He's looking at her, but speaking to him do you see this woman? Do you see her? He looks at her. You can just imagine the, um, the compassion and the tenderness in his eyes as he speaks to her. And he says in the hearing of everyone else at the table, he's now going to settle the dispute. Who chose the best path? he's now going to contrast her response and Simon's response before everyone as if to say to her, dear sister, you too have judged rightly. And so he compares. He says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. She does what Simon, the host, should have done. Everything he should have done, that's what she does. She shows honor to Jesus and love to him. The only thing he can do is muster up some food on the table and a couple judgmental thoughts. And so Jesus has settled the dispute before everyone else at the table. Imagine their shock. A few things. First, Jesus accepts her devotion and he accepts her love because he's worthy of it. Only Jesus can receive this level of devotion and this level of worship without it being blasphemous to God or degrading to the person at his feet. The position there that she was in at the feet of Jesus with that level of awareness and communion and intimacy and love is not degrading. It is not degrading to be at the feet of Christ for any man or any woman to be at the feet of Christ with this level of awareness is to taste heaven. And so he accepts it because he's worthy of it. But he not only accepts it, he appears to have found delight in her love and her devotion. You know, I think this is hard for us to grasp. Jesus Christ truly enjoys being in the presence of repenting sinners. He truly does enjoy the presence of repenting sinners. He is the friend of sinners. This is who he is. You know, it's one thing for him to accept my praise. You know, as Christians, we have a high view of Jesus. Of course, Jesus would accept my praise. Of course, he would even accept my service and receive my service. But to enjoy my presence... To delight to be with me? To to enjoy being in the presence of the people for whom he has removed every single barrier that would have separated them? That's hard for us to get. I mean, could he really be this good? Could God really be this good? Is it really true? The story says yes, it really is. And you might think, well, you don't know what I've done or for how long I've done it. Yeah, I don't need to. Jesus knew Simon's thoughts. He knows yours and everything else about you. But here's the thing about Jesus. He's the one who clears the debt. And this is what makes Christianity so unique, so compelling, that God himself is the one who clears the debt. He's the one who wipes it clean. So there's no interest rates. There's no repayment plans. There's no penalties. He's the one who clears the debt you might think, well, how could this be? I mean, someone's got to pay the debt. Even when the bank forgives the loan, they take upon themselves the costs. Again, this is what makes Christianity so unique, so compelling, that God, the one to whom the debt is owed, is the one who pays the debt. That Jesus Christ, truly God, truly human, dies on the cross, taking upon himself the very penalty that we deserve taking upon the debt, canceling the record of wrong for the sins of his people. Do you know why this level of communion and fellowship can happen between a woman like that with her past and, and Jesus? Do you know why that could happen? Because he knows that one day he'll walk up Calvary's hill and pay for those sins himself on the cross that he pays for the sins of people like her, and he pays for the sins of people like you, that you can have this level of fellowship with him too, that Jesus said that all those who come to me, all those who come to me, I will never cast out. And so he says, come to me, come to me, that all those who come in faith, trusting that Christ alone can reconcile them to God, that his work on the cross is sufficient to wipe away all of our sins, he will never cast away. Why wouldn't you come to him? What could possibly be stopping you? So three contrasts here. There's a contrast in approach. There's a contrast in awareness. And finally, a contrast in blessing. Look at verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she has loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. Uh, other Bible translations do it just a little bit better job making this clear. I'll spare you the details of, you know, the Greek. But um, it's probably better translated, your sins have been forgiven. Jesus is referring to something that's happened in the past. So it's not that she showed this level of love and then Jesus responds with forgiving her sins. Right? What's the whole point of the story? the one who has their debt cleared, responds in love, right? And, and so Jesus makes this clear there. The, the, look how the story ends in verse 50. The end of the story, Jesus makes it clear, right? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Right? It's her faith in Christ that has saved her, not her response of love and devotion. Her response of love and devotion demonstrates, reveals, proves that she knows her sins have been forgiven by Jesus. Her love and devotion is the response of her faith, not the cause of it. And just so Jesus makes, just so everyone at the table knows, Jesus makes it clear. Verse 48, he pronounces, your sins are forgiven. And look at those at the table, verse 49. Those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? You see what Luke is showing us? At that dinner table, that dinner party, there is one person who understands. (laughs) The woman, the least likely. There's one person who knows who he is, who knows what he can do, and who has come to him. And because of that, there's only one person who walks away from that table with the assurance of the forgiveness of their sins, fellowship with Christ, and confidence that they have peace with God. So, do you want to love him more? Do you want a, a deeper and, and richer communion and fellowship with Christ? Well, the story teaches us we'll, we'll never get there until we realize how much we've been forgiven. So what does Jesus say? He, he who has, uh, for, is forgiven little loves little you might think, well, that's kind of strange. So in order for my love for Jesus to, to rise, I need just to kind of think about how bad I am. It's not what I said. Remember the point of the story, or the point of the sermon? That our love for Jesus will rise to the level of, of our awareness of his forgiveness. And, and so your love for Christ will never rise if you only think about how sinful you are. Necessary, important step but you must take another one. You must not only think about how sinful you are, but you also must think about how much sin he's forgiven. Right? You look at yourself only then to look at him, to see what a great Savior he is. You just think about it for a second, think about it for a second just what a, great, what a great Savior he is. Just that on the cross, the billions of people who will trust in him, He wiped away all of their debt. Just imagine the amount of debt that the work of Christ on the cross has cleared. I mean, how holy must he be? How righteous must he be? How pleasing to the Father must he be? How sufficient must his work be on the cross to cancel the debt of billions of people? Oh, friends, heaven will be a very full place. All of their sins canceled by this Savior. And it gets better because it's not only that Jesus was able to do it, but that he wanted to. He wanted to clear our debt. He wanted to save us. I mean, he is gracious. He is the friend of sinners. No wonder why this woman busted through the door and fell at his feet. She got it. He's for people like me. He's a savior for people like me. And he's a savior for people like you. Unless, of course, like Simon, you think you're above him. So do you see this woman? This is what awareness of forgiveness looks like. This is what love looks like. This is what it looks like when a sinner realizes that Jesus is both mighty Savior and a precious friend to sinners. Let's pray.